Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, welcome back everyone. We didn't mention this on the last episode, but I would be remiss if I didn't pay tribute to one of the fallen heroes, one of our personal inspirations for the Michael and Us podcast, a role model for both Luke and I. Yes, I'm talking about the beloved broadcaster Larry King, who passed away last weekend at the age of 87. I am curious, Luke, what has been your exposure to Larry King, if any? Uh, I think I caught him on late night TV a few times uh, during the two months that uh, my dad had cable growing up because okay. the uh, my dad uh, moved and uh, the the previous owners didn't uh, disconnect the cable and we got we got two months of it. You probably also saw him in a lot of movies over the years where he would play like. <laughs> He would play Larry King interviewing the lead character from the movie. Yes. Uh, you, he'd be talking to Bullworth or he'd be talking to, I don't know, Kevin Costner in Swing Vote or whatever whatever movie it was. I mean, he's he's probably fulfilled that function on conservatively three or four movies we've watched for this podcast. I felt uh, a little sad that Larry King died, I had I have to say. I mean, I'm, I'm sentimental about any old guy who dies. I'm sentimental about anyone who seems like the end of an era. Even if it's like, you know, kind of a hack broadcaster, you know, softball interview guy. But the other reason I feel a bit sad is because there was something, I think, uh, genuinely authentic about him. He truly was a bozo in suspenders. And he also barely pretended to care about most of the interviews he did. He, he wasn't fake ingratiating the way that somebody like Anderson Cooper is. You know, he famously did no research before any interview at all. And the interviews would, would seem like that. Right. This is this is why he's your role model for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No research, not caring, falling asleep. I'll just tell you two of my favorite King memories. Uh, one of them sort of went viral again this week. Jerry Seinfeld was on to promote his hit film B-Movie. And Larry King, during the interview, said something like, uh, after the cancellation of your show Seinfeld, and of course, Seinfeld, when he heard the word cancellation, he freaked out. He went like, canceled? I was number one, Larry. Can somebody get Larry a resume? Do you know that there's a difference between being number one and being canceled, right? And this was kind of a famous exchange on TV. This was the the, fr- the Frost Nixon of late night TV. <laughs> I thought about how much more sympathetic Larry King comes across in that clip than Seinfeld <laughs> does, where it's like, what's the deal with this journalist who doesn't realize how popular I am? <laughs> and I'll tell you my other favorite Larry King moment. I'm surprised this isn't better known, but about 10 years ago, maybe 11 or 12 years ago, uh, he had Sharon Tate's sister on. And he asked her a question, something like, uh, now, I, I understand you're in touch with Roman Polanski. And she said, uh, yes. And he said, how can you uh, stay on speaking terms with him after his involvement in the death of your sister? And Sharon Tate's sister is like, R- Roman didn't kill Sharon. And, you know, obviously, Larry King got his wires crossed in his head between Roman Polanski and Charles Manson. And that's the kind of, like, beautiful television moment that you just don't get anymore. And so, you know, rest in peace to a legend, to the greatest of all time. But anyway, I do genuinely feel a lot of affection for him. You know, so many interviews, his interviews with Marlon Brando, his interviews with Jerry Lewis. I spent more time than you might expect watching Larry King interviews over the years, so... Hat tip to the aptly named Larry King. Uh, a luxury you can't live without. A luxury I can't live without. Coffee. I really like good coffee. It's not coffee. a luxury you can get it anywhere. Uh, I guess, yeah, I like good coffee. What's? Uh, I love coffee, too. I like nice socks. Socks. 
your your socks would you put in your shoes? Yeah, I really love them. I like kind of like you know cozy feet. You're attracted to your socks. I'm attracted to really nice running socks. Like I'm always looking for good running you know, socks. Not, that's not a luxury though. Coffee and socks are not a luxury. All right, give me a luxury. Which what luxury should I have? Private plane. Larry, I'm on Ducktales. Well, I haven't been able to partake in uh, in any of the memorials myself because I've been preoccupied with a political scandal that has been rocking our motherland, the nation of Canada. I mean, I assume you've you've been too. For those who don't know, uh, Canada's Governor General uh, Julie Payette, a former astronaut, recently resigned. Now, I think most of our American listeners, and if if we're being honest, most of our Canadian listeners as well, probably won't uh, know the what the Governor General is or the theoretically vital constitutional role that they perform. Does it make you feel ashamed to have to explain it? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really embarrassing and you know i think a lot about this poll there was a constitutional crisis in canada in uh, late 2008 and early 2009 and uh, you know it involved the prime minister basically going to the governor general who uh legally speaking constitutionally speaking has the right to uh, grant or de- deny a request to prorogue parliament. So in 2008-2009, in, uh, it was uh, the Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who was uh, leading a minority government that had only been in power for a few weeks, and um, he was about to be ousted by a liberal NDP coalition. And he basically went to the Governor General and he said, can we just shut down parliament so that I don't, so that I'm not defeated? And the Governor General said, Sure. Uh, all, you know, with the with the caveat that the shutdown had to be um, just a few months long. But it was one time out of, you know, a very few times where the governor general has had to make a significant decision. Um, and there was a poll from this time. This is what I wanted to mention uh, that found that a majority of Canadians didn't realize that the governor general was actually Canada's head of state. A majority of Canadians thought that the head of state was uh, Stephen Harper, the, the prime minister, uh, who was directly elected, which, of course, also isn't true. Well, technically, is our head of state not the queen and the governor general is the queen's representative here? Well, that's right. Yes. But like functionally speaking, the governor general is the uh, is it is a head of state. But yes, to make this even more ridiculous, Canada's head of state is an elderly woman of German descent who lives in a castle across the ocean. And uh, she's on our money. By the way. That's right. She's on all our money. And pretty soon, Charles will be on our money. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> anyway, I was initially very anxious about this. The, the backstory, by the way, to uh, Julie Payette's resignation is that uh, there's been some allegations that she's created a toxic work environment uh, at Rideau Hall, which is the official residence of the governor general. It's emerged that uh, she wasn't really vetted by the Trudeau government properly. I think this is perfectly in keeping with the role, to be honest. It is a role which, in theory, is invested with all of this grand constitutional significance. But in practice, you know, it's a role that's given to former CBC arts presenters, media personalities, you know, kind of celebrities. You know, it's come out in the reporting on this that, you know, the Trudeau people were kind of so in awe of Julie Payette's celebrity status because, you know, she's like one of just a handful of retired Canadian astronauts. You know, they they didn't really bother to do kind of basic HR uh, research on this. But anyway, I was initially very anxious when I thought we had no governor general, you know, the seat of power left vacant, just a spiritual void at the heart of my country. But it turns out the chief justice of the Supreme Court is uh, serving as interim governor general. So now we're all just waiting with bated breath for the purple smoke to come out uh, the chimneys 
of Rideau Hall to find out uh, who the new governor general is. I, I'm on the edge of my seat, and I'm sure you are too. Are you sensing from anyone in Canada that there is excitement or interest, like in any, in any circles? Because I know that you know uh, the monarchy is popular in some circles. Well, there was actually a poll recently that found I think it was an abacus poll which found that uh, a majority of Canadians might be in favor of getting rid of the monarchy. Now, I assume that that will you know obviously the monarchy is preparing to kind of update itself. You know, front front itself with a you know an attractive, photogenic younger couple, um, and that I would imagine that will uh, that will spike the poll numbers a little bit a few years from now. But uh, to answer your question, no, I don't. I mean, I, don't, I really don't think anybody cares, which is sort of the reason I'm having fun with this. Is <laughs> I I would guess that uh, hardly anyone is even was even really aware of this scandal. And, you know, like the Ottawa Press Gallery has been, you know, reporting on it and they've been they've been doing their jobs. There's been some, you know, interesting uh, reporting, some some decent scoops that have come out of this. But I honestly don't get the sense that even they're all that interested. <laughs> you know, it's just not that consequential a story because uh, for the most part, it re- it's really just not that consequential a role. I mean, it, it, it could be, but... Uh, that's not uh, historically what, what it's been. One of the reasons why we have a governor general still and why we are still technically, I guess, a, a branch of the British Empire. We're, is we're, th- we're, we're, well, we're a constitutional monarchy. Right. Yeah. It's mostly out of inertia, I would say, because what, what we're taught at school is the queen, the governor general, these are basically symbolic representatives. They don't really mean anything. I mean, when I think about that now, I often think of, I, I believe, the 1975 situation in Australia where the monarchy actually did dismiss uh, a left-leaning government yes Gough whitlam was was removed in a uh you know in a constitutional coup basically yeah right so i think about that a lot when i think of the governor general maybe i'm making too big a deal out of that in the current context but i don't like having a governor general who could just like theoretically do that like they did to australia well here's the deal so i mean that kind of story that you're taught in schools about how it's just a symbolic role that's actually true. And a lot of the time, it really seems like that doesn't matter. But I think what the constitutional crisis of 2008 and 2009 shows, we don't we don't have popular sovereignty in Canada when they legislate or when they prorogue parliament, as was the case in 2008. You know, they're exercising crown powers, not uh, not popular powers. And essentially, that means that the executive has very limited check on its power. I mean, we don't hear about this very much anymore because there's a liberal government rather than a conservative one. But, you know, if you have a majority government in this country, which, you know, you can get with 35% of the popular vote, I think sometimes less, with the amount of party discipline we have, with the amount of centralization uh, of like cabinet government, you know, most decisions are now kind of filtered through the prime minister's office. I mean, it's essentially like an almost unlimited kind of executive power. And what that meant in 2008 was that the prime minister was about to lose a parliamentary vote. Now, he was in a minority at the time, not a, a majority. But even being in, in, in a minority gave him the opportunity to go to the governor general and say, hey, I'm prime minister. Can I use your power, the, uh, the power of the crown? to just cancel Parliament so that I don't have to submit to the institution of representative democracy. And he got away with it. So I don't know, I've never really bought the argument, at least not as a defense of our uh, constitutional status quo, that, oh, it's just symbolic and it doesn't matter. 
Um, because, you know, you just go back to this example I'm citing, and it, it very clearly does matter. And you can also imagine, as in the Australian case you cited, all kinds of problems with having, you know, a, a, a more powerful governor general. But nevertheless, I think it, it's it's a really big problem that our governor general doesn't have a lot of legitimacy, even, you know, when they have to make these big decisions. If the governor general had said no to Stephen Harper in 2008, this was uh, Mikel Jean, not, not Julie Payette, you know, that itself, that would have been a national crisis because people would have said, well, who's this unelected person who's making this decision? I'm not exactly sure what my, you know, preferred reform of this uh, of this status quo would be, but I definitely uh, I definitely don't like it. And I think it's clearly a problem. I don't know how anyone could deny that's a problem that the head of state of a country is probably not recognized as such by most of the residents of that country. And that even when there's a major national scandal in the residence of the head of state, most people don't even really know what's going on. Well, we move on from Her Majesty's government to Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> for a visit with our old friend James Bond. And what better James Bond to talk about than Pierce Brosnan? That's right. The Berlin Wall has fallen. Is Bond still relevant? We're going to find out with 1995's Golden Eye of Lace and Leather. You were singing that to me before, and I was like, "What? What the hell is that?" And <laughs> and you and you you accused me of not doing due diligence because I skipped uh, the theme song in this movie. And I just want to say, I have sat through more episodes of The West Wing for the purposes of podcasting than any living person. And don't don't accuse me of not doing due diligence. Well, you missed a great opening credits where, like, you know, the Bond like silhouetted naked women are like toppling statues at the, in the Soviet Union and, like, crushing <laughs> hammer and sickle signs. You're right. I probably should have watched it. You can still depend on one man. On November 17th, United Artists brings you The Return of James Bond. You were expecting someone else? James Bond. So yeah, I've been watching a lot of James Bond movies lately. That's kind of what sparked this. I've been watching a lot from the Connery era. I watched Goldfinger, which is actually quite fun. And that's kind of the only one I've seen lately that I really liked. I think Goldfinger might have been the only one. Like I, a while ago, I was like, okay, I like, you know, Skyfall or whatever. What if I try to watch like some of the classics and I feel like I might have kind of liked Goldfinger. I don't really remember, though. Most of those movies, like the Connery and Roger Moore ones, you know, had almost no impact on me. Goldfinger's got a lot of fun stuff in it. It's got a good villain. It's got some fun gadgets. The plot, you know, the plot moves along. From Russia with Love, people talk about how much they love that one. They say, oh, From Russia with Love, that's the one that's a real spy movie. But I swear, there's a scene where Bond just, like, goes to his hotel room, and you follow him for, like, five minutes as he's just checking behind every picture frame looking for bugs. And, like, his theme music is just blaring through the whole scene. <laughs> the least action-packed scene ever in a Bond movie with the most ferocious music. And I've been getting a lot of that from these Bond movies. I really do think that if you take most of the Bond movies and you compare them with what was happening in Hong Kong at the same time, it totally blows Bond out of the water. You know, Jackie Chan was falling from the top of a clock tower, you know, eight stories and landing on his head 
while Roger Moore was like pretending to ski in front of a green screen. Yeah, I definitely take like Golden Harvest era Chan, you know, like Drunken Master, uh, stuff like that. I take those ahead of like any of the old Bond movies uh, any day. Can, we, can I ju- can I just digress for a second though? I mean, your your viewing habits. You know, we have been doing this podcast together for you know more than four years now. I think probably going on five. We've watched a lot of movies together. Uh, we watched movies together even uh, before we started. You know, we monetized uh, the habit. Well, we used to watch more good movies together. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's true. And the podcast uh, has unfortunately kind of robbed us of uh, opportunities to do that uh, at least at least uh, much of the time. But I feel like I still don't understand your viewing habits. I cannot get you to watch The Sopranos. We did a whole episode on, where I, or not a whole episode, but we did a whole segment on a recent episode where I was talking about season two of The Wire, and you just had to sit there because you have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, I was nodding along. It sounded very interesting. <laughs> well, I don't understand how you can watch, you know, On Her Majesty's Secret Service and Octopussy, and, you know, like you can binge watch stuff like that when you've just said you don't even like them, and I cannot get you to watch like the sopranos of the wire all right listen i'm gonna watch the sopranos any day now and that's a promise and by any day now i mean any month now the people Uh, the people are crying out for it we get so many requests to talk about it james bond there are 24 (laughs) movies that's like a season of tv the sopranos there's just so fucking much anyway i'm gonna watch the sopranos though i'm sure i'm sure it's wonderful if you're if you're a listener to this show if you're if you're either you know a a listener to our free episodes if you're on the patreon and you're a dues paying member of michael and us nation please tweet it will bully will tell him to watch the sopranos wow. you know send send letter to, let letters to his house we're gonna do targeted we're gonna do targeted harassment campaign wow they're right about the bernie bros <laughs> <laughs> but anyway golden eye uh, was probably the one that i watched the most when i was a kid because pierce brosnan is my bond when i was a kid james bond was exciting because he was very grown up he wore a suit he uh talked government stuff he has sex. He has sex. That, that was big. He gambles, he drinks, and uh, he's suave. And <laughs> Pierce Brosnan, whatever else you will say about him, he is the suavest Bond. And I think we're focusing on the Pierce Brosnan era and GoldenEye specifically because they're some of the most dated Bond movies. They are uh, end of history Bond movies for sure. These films take place between the fall of the Soviet Union and the war on terror. And they find Bond uh, kind of flailing, looking for relevance. What is the purpose of James Bond in the New World Order? And GoldenEye answers that question by saying, well, well hang on, there's a glitch in the New World Order. Uh, it turns out turns out we still have some bad Russians that he can fight. But before we get to the movie properly, can we talk about uh, the video game? Because oh, yeah. to me, like, honestly, I think that is, you know, my real entry point to this movie. I've seen this movie maybe three or four times over the years, but I have spent so much time playing the GoldenEye video game. Well, when you watch the movie, don't you like see the levels from it? Oh, yeah. When he's in that like graveyard with all the statues. Or... That's the statue level. And uh, or when he goes into the toilet at the beginning of the movie. The, yeah, that happens. The helicopter crash in the jungle. That's, you know, that's like directly in the video game. The cradle level, like that's kind of the final sequence of the movie. I confess I was never that good at the game. I mean, I remember there were the different different difficulty levels and i think i always just played it on agent you know as a kid i found it because it was you know it was like this pioneering first person shooter right until then first person shooters had mostly been like a computer thing and like i think it really popularized them on consoles um and you know goldeneye was the 
unrivaled champion until Perfect Dark came out a few years later, and then I guess both were kind of blown out of the water by Halo. But I remember finding anything beyond the agent difficulty extremely difficult because even even with that, you know, it wasn't just a game where you could go through everything, you know, every kind of room and just shoot shoot everybody, <laughs> which is the only thing I knew how to do as a kid. Like, you know, you were supposed to read the folder that they give you at the beginning that has you like it gives you the briefing, uh, and you know, there's just more more and more homework that you had to do when you went on to special agent, you know, double O agent, whatever. I remember finding that level. I think it was one of the first ones, if not the first ones, the facility level mm-hmm. where, you know, you have to like not shoot the scientists. Well, that's why you did it wrong. Cause whenever I would play it, I would just like give up and I would just start shooting the scientists, <laughs> which is great because the scientists aren't allowed to move. They've got their hands up so you can shoot them in the left arm, the right arm, the left <laughs> leg, the right leg until they finally die. And that's a much healthier activity for a boy to do than, like, picking the wings off flies or something. I I had endless fun at the end of that sequence. I guess it was, like, that first level was sort of broken up into three, and there was, like, the runway section of it where, you know, you end by, like, getting in the plane, which, of course, he also does in the movie. And I remember figuring out, like, once you've unlocked the timed mine, I I figured out that if you put the timed mine on the side of the plane and then you time, like, getting into the plane exactly right in the cutscene afterwards when the plane takes off you can make the plane explode while still uh you know succeeding in the level by the way this is a further digression but in the opening scene of the movie which runs parallel to the opening levels of the game bond does two big stunts and by bond i mean his stunt double he does like a mighty bungee jump on over a dam and the other one he he rides his motorcycle off a big cliff and through the miracle of cgi he's able to catch up to the plane that's falling but the stuntman did the actual like motorcycle off a cliff and again i think if you compare it to what was happening in hong kong you know it's cool you know a guy parachuted out of a plane big deal you know sam hung was getting hit by a car and flying across the screen in Supercop, Jackie Chan does an entire fight scene on stilts where he's like beating people up with like, it's like kicking the guys with the stilts. Well, in that same movie, in that same movie, Michelle Yeoh drives a motorcycle onto a moving train. What, yeah. what do you want? I, Michelle Yeoh, who's in who's in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, right? That's right. And I'll take that one image over the entire James Bond <laughs> canon. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I continue to watch them. We'll move on from the video game in a second, I promise. But like, were you one of those people that played Goldeneye like on like DK mode? Where yeah, I did like, that the big sometimes. Heads? Yeah, uh-huh. for fun. I, be- I bet you uh, I, I played video games. In fact, I've the only video games I've ever played with you, I think, have been on the N64 uh, because you used to have one at your old place. And I bet you, like you're the kind of gamer you're the one that like played as odd job who has like the smaller hitbox you have little brother energy while gaming yeah no i i mean that that's fair to say that's totally reasonable (laughs) but i always played as james bond because i wanted to be james bond for the same reason that i always played as mario in mario kart you know i want to be i want to be the alpha dog even if I don't play that way. Goldeneye, load a rumble pack. You know how to use one of these? And see how it feels when 007 meets N64. Well, you know, I guess we can't spend the whole episode talking about the uh, 1997 N64 game based on this movie. So let's get to the movie itself. We should probably uh, we should probably summarize the plot a bit, which like I think it's safe to say. I mean, this is like this movie's fun in a you know a dumb kind of way. I I think it's fair to say that the plot is pretty convoluted. It's convoluted, but it's also like I think when you actually lay it out, pretty simple. Two of the key players are James Bond. You might have heard of him, as well as 006, his colleague Alec Travelin, played by Sean Bean. 
they are brothers in arms. They are uh, the closest friends. But in the 1980s, before the end of the Soviet Union, when they're doing a raid on this big weapons factory, Alec Travelin, 006, is killed in the crossfire. Or is he? Because some years later, in 1995, when Gorbachev is a mere memory, there is a sudden rupture in the land of opportunity that is Russia. A gang of Cossacks. The Cossacks were a faction of Russia who uh, collaborated with the Axis powers, but were also against the Soviet Union. After the Second World War, they hoped to be uh, patriated into the United Kingdom. However, they were sent back by the UK to Russia. This is what I mean by convoluted. Well, James Bond, in his conversation with Robbie Coltrane, does point out that it was not Britain's finest moment. So, so Bond, at least, doesn't feel too good about what happened to the Cossacks. But some of them are harboring resentment. Many of their families were executed by the ruling communists. And now, years later in the 90s, they're going to have revenge on Great Britain. And this is the part, actually, that I'm a little bit unclear on. They're going to rob the Bank of London. They're going to take all the money out of London. And then they're going to use a thing called the Golden Eye. The Golden Eye is a thing in this movie. And it, what does it do? It erases the browsing history, something like that. Well, here, yeah, right. So here's the thing it erases the browsing history. Well, I mean, kind of, yeah. I mean, so this is the thing about this movie. This is how the movie lets you know that we're, you know, we're about to enter a new century. Goldeneye, which is a, a Soviet satellite, one of two, we're told. Uh, basically, it's a it's an electromagnetic pulse weapons, so it fries the circuits of everything you know within a given area, and yeah, presumably the internet as well. Uh, hacking is also a big part of this movie. There's a character called Boris, played by Alan Cumming, uh, who we see hacking into the U.S. Department of Justice, presumably altering the vote tallies in uh, in Wisconsin and, and and Michigan so that Hillary Clinton will lose. We also see a helicopter in this film, which for some reason the uh, French officer who's describing it at this demonstration is, is, is saying publicly, oh yeah, by the way, this is the first uh, military aircraft that's impervious to all electromagnetic pulse weapons, which I'm not really sure why that's something that they're, they're revealing. You know, as we're talking about this, I realized the sheer extent to which I did not follow these movies when I was a kid. <laughs> I think when I was a kid, I probably didn't even know what the Soviet Union was. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking like eight nine years old i didn't know what the cold war was uh, these are guys in suits talking about government stuff and then every 20 minutes there will be an action scene and uh, <laughs> i i don't know i don't know why i liked that but i did <laughs> but so just to return to the helicopter you know the helicopter is the product of some kind of you know collaborative uh, effort by what looks to be nato one of the key villains zinia onitop who's uh, played by a uh, a dutch actress i believe which is that that's funny uh both her and omarov uh the sinister russian officer in the movie uh, are are I mean, neither of them is played by russians he's a he's a german actor he was in a lot of Fassbender films, in fact. Well, I'm glad he got a good payday. But so on a top, she steals uh, some Canadian officer or official's uh, credentials and gets into this, you know, this NATO ceremony that's debuting the, the helicopter and steals it. And so, you know, as, as Will alluded to earlier, this is kind of all this is kind of the film telling you, like, this is the new you know frontier of warfare. You know, it's not exactly state actors. You know, it's kind of these these factions and, you know, warfare is now going to be kind of electronic it's going to be fought through the internet, stuff like that. And, you know, even the British characters in the film, uh, notably M, who's now, uh, I think this is the first movie where she's played by Judy Dench. 
they're not sure that, uh, you know, MI6 and, and Bond are still relevant. There's a scene where she kind of chastises him. She gives him a dressing down and she says, you know, you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War, etc., etc." And to be fair, he does seem to harass uh, Moneypenny uh, an awful lot. Well, he traditionally harasses her at the start of every movie, but this movie uh, introduces a little bit of self-aware shtick where she says something to him like, you know, James, this could be interpreted as sexual harassment, which of course was a big sexual harassment was in the news in the 90s. And by the way, it might be worth noting that this was the first Bond movie in six years after the end of the Timothy Dalton era. And the first one, you know, after the end of the Soviet Union. So there's a certain there's a certain air to it of like, uh, oh, we got to we got to make Bond relevant for the 90s. We got to refresh Bond. I mean, the cha- the refreshments are mostly cosmetic, I would say. <laughs> but there are also some parts where Bond is uh, challenged by some of the female characters, like that part where the main Bond girl, Natalia, when they're in Cuba, and she says something to him like, how can you be so cold? How, how can you push people away like this? And he says, it's what keeps me alive, which is a kind of like downbeat brooding shift in the character to kind of like bring him up to date for 90s audiences, quote unquote. Well, there's a, a pretty big twist midway through the movie, of course, which is that Alec Trevelyan, it turns out, is not dead. In fact, he's defected. He's gone rogue and he's working with Ananov and Onatop. And the reason for this is because he comes from a family of ex-Cossacks, this uh, this pro-Nazi faction that, that believes it was betrayed by the British after the Second World War. And so he's basically uh, litigating this Cold War era beef. And he says something about how they're going to, you know, they're going to manipulate the stock market in London or they're going to, you know, something like that uh, and adjusting the rate of inflation back to 1945. And I think very revealingly, the scene where uh, where this twist happens, you know, it, it occurs in this, you know, weird sort of graveyard of all these old Soviet statues, you know. I think it's very deliberate on the film's part that the backdrop for this twist is, is the ideological detritus of the 20th century. You know, these statues of all these like former Soviet politicians and military officers. Also worth mentioning is the presence of a character whose name I've already forgotten, who's a member of the CIA. That would be Jack Wade, played by the great Joe Don Baker, who Mystery Science Theater fans will know from his performances in Mitchell and Final (laughs) Justice. He and Bond kind of have this buddy comedy shtick that they're doing. You mentioned Robbie Coltrane, who plays a Russian character in the movie. He's whining about the free market, grumbling a little bit, but seems to have basically reconciled himself to it. There's actually not too much more in the way of plot to cover. Natalia and Bond end up leaving Russia after she first survives Ananov and Onatop's uh, attack on the satellite facility where she works as a computer programmer, and then later survives and escapes capture with, with Bond's help. The two of them travel to Cuba, which I think is also very significant, right? The movie could have uh, made the home of the satellite be the Dominican Republic or Barbados or somewhere like that. But no, they chose Cuba because Cuba, that hallowed Cold War ground, the former Soviet Union's only real foothold in the Western Hemisphere. So they go to Cuba and end up infiltrating the uh, the cradle, which, unless I'm imagining it, d- didn't the place where they filmed this like collapse recently or something? Oh, no, that's... <laughs> That's where I was planning my honeymoon. (laughs) So they infiltrate this facility. Bond gets revenge on Trevelyan. The structure collapses. Uh, Trevelyan inexplicably falls from the bottom. And then in an instance of hilariously bad special effects, just kind of having fallen about a thousand feet, just very lightly kind of hits the pavement and then is still alive and doesn't die until the entire structure literally falls on his head. 
Bond and Natalia escape into the jungle where they're alone. They start making out and then J- and then she says, James, like, don't. There's probably someone watching. He says, there's no one around in, in 20 miles. But wouldn't you know it, a whole bunch of American, a whole bunch of U.S. Marines who've been camouflaged against the grass pop out of nowhere and uh, Bond's old CIA friend reappears. This is the final shot in the movie. And I think this is a very interesting kind of, you know, 1990s updating of the Bond franchise. Because what it kind of says, deliberately or not, is that American hegemony is ubiquitous. You may not see it, but it's everywhere. Full spectrum dominance has arrived. <laughs> Maybe you two like to finish debriefing each other at Guantanamo. Well, ever since this movie, all of the Bond movies, even though it continues to be such a popular global brand, all of the Bond movies have been preoccupied with the question of how do we make James Bond still relevant in our current society? Because the audience is less innocent than it was in the 1960s. We've been to Iraq, so we know what humanitarian intervention means. We've been trained to be suspicious of spy stuff. There's no there's no evil empire anymore to be afraid of. So, you know, the audience is now thinking, is a shadowy organization like Her Majesty's Secret Service good for society? And I loved uh, watching Skyfall because it's very heavily influenced by, like, The Dark Knight. And so Skyfall says, well, actually, it's extremely relevant. It's relevant because now the evil empire is everywhere, right? And we're the only ones equipped to fight it because we're the ones who live in the dark night. And, you know, if, if you've seen the stuff that we've seen, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? And yes, we created some of the evil. It's true. Javier Bardem, uh, we fucked him up and we're sorry about that. But, you know, we're going out there without a map and you're going to break a few eggs making a big omelet out of saving the world. And we're not happy about that. And that's why uh, we're, we're so not happy about that. We're not giving you space lasers anymore. You know, we're not giving you fun gadgets. We're not giving you cars with ejector seats. We're not giving you a shoe that has a phone in it. The gadgets, you got a gun and you got a pen that has a bomb in it. That's all you got. Because this is this is very serious now. This is not kid stuff anymore. Well, I'm glad you bring all this up because I do have a, a reading of GoldenEye and how it answers the question, is James Bond still relevant in the late 20th century in a post-Cold War world? I think when you look at the film, you can see that all of its, all of its antagonists, uh, whatever their differences may be, they all have something in common which is that they all want to relitigate, you know, stuff from the 20th century. They're either Russians who are still fighting the battles of of 1945 or who are using Soviet-made weaponry. They're people who, you know, haven't haven't accepted uh, this new world, this exciting new world of a Washington-led global consensus and everything that it has to offer. I don't think it's controversial to say of a Bond film that I think the politics of this film are uh, rather misogynistic because I think its political thesis kind of plays out in the two female leads, Anatop and Natalia. There's a very plausible reading in which each of them kind of represents a different possibility for Russia after the Cold War. You have Anatop, you know, who, like uh, global communism, is incredibly seductive. You know, she's tied to, you know, the old, uh, the old Soviet regime. She doesn't accept Bond. And importantly, she's not attracted to him. There's that scene where they're fighting, uh, you know, they kind of fight in the sauna or whatever, and she's just kind of like beating him up or whatever. She's down for the odd, you know, tussle or like, you know, proxy war, a bit of espionage or whatever, but she remains fundamentally antagonistic. Let's leave all that in the dustbin of history. And then, you know, you have Natalia, who is all too happy to leave with Bond, you know, leave the frozen wastes of the former Eastern Bloc for sunny Cuba. Uh, We see her at one point, and I couldn't help but notice this. She walks into a store that's advertising IBM computers, which, you know, obviously represent, you know, the uh, American-led 1990s very strongly. 
She's happy to go around with Bond and his friend from the CIA. She's got none of the old Cold War detritus. And of the two women, she's the one that's attracted to Bond. I'm not saying this to praise the film. I genuinely think that this is kind of what it's doing with the two female characters and that it's pretty gross. Uh, Xenia on a top, like she will fuck James Bond uh, if she's on a top, so to speak. Right. So in the grand tradition of like female characters in Bond films having like ridiculous pun names. But yeah, like I think the film in the film, I, I really think like she's supposed to represent the old Russia. And what the film is saying is like, you know, Russia has IBM computers now. They have a laissez-faire economics, courtesy of various economics departments around the United States. But we got to be vigilant, people, because Russia may seduce us and, uh, you know, kill us with her thighs. That's what the film is saying. So also in the grand tradition of, of Bond films, having an outrageously sexist portrayal of their female characters down to kind of a metapolitical level in this movie. But so this is what I think the thesis of the movie is. In keeping with a lot of films from the 1990s, particularly action movies, what it's saying is, look, let's leave the detritus of the 20th century behind us. But let's remain vigilant. Russia could still be a threat. And at the end of the day, uh, we still need MI6. We still need the CIA. We still need NATO and its fancy gadgets that uh, are resistant to EMP, which is the new frontier of warfare. Uh, We still need Bond's, you know, cold, interesting choice of word there. He's like cold, brooding, murderous machismo. We can't let Russia get too close. And uh, we still need uh, boys with toys, which is the phrase that Natalia keeps using in the movie. She pejoratively refers to boys with toys. And the film says, actually, yes, we still we still need them. And as I said already, the film reminds us at the end that even though MI6 is necessary, the Yanks are actually watching over everybody because they're the new bosses. And they're hiding in the jungle even when Bond and Natalia are trying to have the ceremonial Act 3 kiss. So, Mr. Bond, what is it that brings you to my neighborhood? Hmm? Still working for MI6 or have you decided to join the 21st century? <laughs> I hear the new M is a wavy. So we're about a week removed from uh, Inauguration Day now. And I guess on Inauguration Day itself and kind of in the subsequent days, I didn't feel like sort of going against the prevailing zeitgeist because a lot of people were just feeling very relieved. And, you know, it didn't seem like uh, an intervention on my part would would be particularly helpful. One one among plenty of moments these days where me saying what's actually in my head uh, would not have been uh, particularly helpful. Oh, and oh man, people wouldn't want to hear the sick stuff that's going on in my head. So I keep that to myself. (laughs) But I don't know. I I will say, you know, now that we're a week removed, I feel like I can say this, but I I, Biden's speech, I was astonished at. uh, And I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense in the context that it was happening. It it makes sense at least how people would react this way. But I was astonished by even some people, you know, who I really like and, you know, whose work I respect, just how kind of moved they seem to be by a speech, which as emblematic, you know, as as emblematic of Biden as as it possibly could have been, just, you know, a celebration of compromise and and unity and kind of in, you know, sort of vague Biden-y, you know, very abstract way, uh, moving past division. I thought this this very kind of strange device, and maybe I did mention this on our on our recent Patreon episode, this kind of constant invocation of the Civil War and Lincoln as an example of like ending conflict. Seems to me the Civil War was kind of the opposite of that. Civil War not being a particularly good example of bipartisanship in action. But yeah, I was I was struck by just how kind of moved some people seemed to be of it. And I just happened to uh, come across a quote from the writer H.L. Mencken, a bit of prose uh, from, from 1921. This was courtesy of Thomas Frank. He brought it up on uh, on a recent podcast that he appeared on. I have never seen this before, but this is some incredibly uh, fun writing. And uh, basically the context is uh, the election of Warren G. Harding 
who was uh, running on a promise to uh, a return to normalcy. This was an election uh, which was actually the first that women could vote in, and it was the uh, greatest margin of victory in the popular vote up until that time. Now, H.L. Mencken was uh, was not impressed, and he had this to say of what I think was uh, Harding's inaugural address, and this is what we're going to send you out with today. On the question of the logical content of Dr. Harding's harangue of last Friday, I do not presume to have views. The matter has been debated at great length by the editorial writers of the Republic, all of them experts in logic. Moreover, I confess to being prejudiced when a man arises publicly to argue that the United States entered the war because of a, quote, concern for preserved civilization. I can only snicker in a superior way and wonder why he isn't holding down the chair of history in some American university. When he says that the United States has, quote, never sought territorial aggrandizement through force, the snicker arises to the virulence of a chuckle. And I turn to the first volume of General Grant's memoirs. And when gaining momentum, he gravely informs the boobery that, quote, ours is a constitutional freedom where the popular will is supreme and minorities are sacredly protected. Then I abandon myself to a mirth that transcends perhaps the seemly. But when it comes to the style of a great man's discourse, I can speak with a great deal less prejudice and maybe with somewhat more competence, for I have earned most of my livelihood for 20 years past by translating the bad English of a multitude of authors into measurably better English. Thus qualified professionally, I rise to pay my small tribute to Dr. Harding. Setting aside a college professor or two and a half dozen dipsomaniacal newspaper reporters, he takes the first place in my Valhalla of literati. That is to say, he writes the worst English I have ever encountered. It reminds me of a string of wet sponges. It reminds me of tattered washing on the line. It reminds me of stale bean soup, of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights. It is so bad that a sort of grandeur creeps into it. It drags itself out of the dark abysm. I was about to write abscess of pish and crawls insanely up to the utmost pinnacle of posh it is rumble and humble it is flap and doodle it is balder and dash but i grow lyrical more scientifically what is the matter with it why does it seem so flabby so banal so confused and childish so stupidly at war with sense If you had first read the inaugural address and then heard it intoned as I did, at least in part, then you'll perhaps arrive at an answer. That answer is very simple. When Dr. Harding prepares a speech, he does not think of it in terms of an educated reader locked up in jail, but in terms of a great horde of stoneheads gathered around a stand. That is to say, the thing is always a stump speech. It is conceived as a stump speech and written as a stump speech. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's quite long, but I'll just read from the conclusion here. He continues, But is such bosh out of place in stump speech? Obviously not. It is precisely and thoroughly in place of stump speech. A tight fabric of ideas would weary and exasperate the audience. What it wants is a simple, loud burble of words, a procession of phrases that roar, a series of whoops. This is what it got in the inaugural address of Honorable Warren G. Harding. And this is what it will get for four long years, unless God sends a miracle and and the corruptible puts on incorruption. Almost I long for the sweeter song, the rubber stamps of more familiar design, the gentler and more seemly bosh of the late Woodrow Wilson. Anyway, that was H.L. Mencken on Warren G. Harding. And boy, was he ever wrong about Warren G. Harding. That was a great president. Yes, a man whose achievements have been etched into the record of history. A guy all American school children have heard of. Anyway, that's tangential, but I'd never seen, but I don't think I'd actually ever read H.L. Uh, Mencken's prose before, and uh, it was too fun not to share. Now watch this drive. See you next time, folks. Hey.